November the 8th, 2012, and this is episode 1016 of the Survival Podcast. Kind of a lot of things came together here. We're going to be talking to Joe Nobody today on uh, tactical training in his new book called The Homeschooled Shootist, and that's going to be really great, and it's a coincidental topic that comes up with one of our advertisers today. And then today is the 8th of November. That was a uh, pretty significant uh, date in the annals of what's gone on in Vietnam, and hence the Big and Rich song known as the 8th of November. You might want to check into that just for a little history about what today is all about, given we're so close to Veterans Day now. All right, with that, though, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Hey, we're going to talk a lot today about training on your own, but training with a trainer is a great thing to do, too. And one of the best places you can get your firearms training is Fortress Defense Consultants. And I like to talk to uh, the gals out there for a moment. I often say, guys, you know, you guys can have Frank come train you, or you can go see him. And I want to really real clear, I say guys like I say people, right? So I mean everybody. Because I had a uh, female member of the audience write me and tell me that you really need to make sure you're driving home with women, how important taking training like this is, and that they would be in no better hands than Frank and his, his staff. Uh, she's been to two different classes up there with him, and she absolutely loves Frank and uh, Fortress Defense Consultants uh, for training. And she said that I need to make sure I recommend to all of you ladies out there that if you want some training, that's a great place to go get it. Guys, and I do mean guys as males this time, you guys too. And remember, if you can't get to Fortress Defense Consultants up in, uh, in I think it's in, in Indiana, right on the Indiana-Illinois uh, border, uh, you can put together a group and he'll come out and work with you and do on-site training at a range near you or on your own property if you have a sufficient property. Check him out today, Fortress Defense Uh, FortressDefense.com. Uh, next up today, Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey guy? Shocking as it might be, you might find Berkey water filtration systems with the Berkey guy. That's what you would get there. And why go to the Berkey guy? Why not go to the gun show and see the latest preparedness booth that's at your local gun show and get a Berkey there or get a Berkey from, you know, another Berkey website or from any, just the, the Berkey guy. He's not like, a Berkey guy. He's the Berkey guy. Why would you go anywhere else? Seriously, though, the real reason to go to Jeff is because he's been taking care of this audience for over three and a half years. He always solves problems. He always immediately gets back to people. The guy's a workaholic, and Berkey speaks for itself, one of the best products out there. Jeff also has a wide range of other really great items for your prepping needs. Check him out today at Directive21.com. That's Directive, and then the numbers 21.com. Best way to visit the Berkey guy, Frank Sharp Jr., and all of all our uh, staff, or all of our staff, all of our sponsors, go to the survivalpodcast.com first, click on their banners in the right-hand margin. You know you're dealing with somebody that actually carries my personal endorsement. Uh, next up, remember, you can help support this show at 18.3 cents an episode by joining the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade. You do that. You get exclusive content available only to members, and you get a wide range of discounts that will more than pay for your membership on an annual basis. You can learn more 
by clicking on the Member Support Brigade banner at thesurvivalpodcast.com or just click on Members at the top. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like paramedics, active duty, and prior service. Uh, if you email me before, not after you join, put service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did. If you're prior service, I'll send you a special discount code to thank you for your service. And with that wrapped up, I'm about ready to introduce our guest. I do want to put out a special announcement. Tomorrow there will be no episode of the Survival Podcast. I'm happy to go down to Texas for a friend's wedding. Uh, it just so happened that we lost a guest this week that we were supposed to have. That guest is on ground zero of the hurricane and just simply had to reschedule. So um, with that happening, it kind of put a hole in the schedule, and there was just no way I could get an additional show done this week. So um, with that, I will be off tomorrow and uh, spending some time uh, with my kiddo uh, before heading down to, uh, to attend my best friend from the Army's wedding. Uh, I told him it's about time he got married, and I uh, look forward to being there. And then we'll be beating feet back Sunday morning, and TSP will return on uh, Monday, as usual, next week. I've heard from a few of you guys down in Austin wanting to kind of hook up with us. Uh, normally, I'd be happy to do that on this trip. It's pretty much, I wouldn't do this for anybody else right now. There's nobody else in the world I would travel this far for for a wedding for. Uh, but he is my Army brother, so uh, I'm going to do it. And we're pretty much going, we're checking in, we're going to the wedding, we're going to the reception, we're going to bed, and we're coming home as soon as we wake up. So I just can't hook up with anybody this time, but I do appreciate the offers. Uh, with that, it's my uh, my uh, good fortune now to introduce our special guest today, uh, Joe Nobody. The reason he's called Joe Nobody is because he doesn't give away his real name due to some of his, uh, his prior service and ongoing service. Um, he prefers to remain anonymous as an author. But he's a great guy. He's also a member of our expert council. It's been a long time since we've had questions for him. So after hearing this one, if you have questions for Joe uh, on the expert council, remember, give us a call, 866-65-THINK, and leave your question. You get about two minutes to do that. When you do for the expert council, whether it's Joe or Frank Sharp or Steve Harris or Chef Keith or any, Paul Wheaton, any of these guys, as soon as you've left your message, immediately email me. Say, hey, I just made a call. Here's my call. Here's the number I called from and the questions for fill in the blank, right? And that way I'll give your call priority in the queue and try to get it on the air at the next available time slot and next available show. Uh, with that, let me introduce uh, Joe Nobody. He is the author of several best-selling books, including Holding Your Ground, The Titowaki Tuxedo, Holding Their Own and Without Rule of Law. His latest book is called The Homeschooled Shootist, Training to Fight with a Carbine, and I think it is one of the best books on advanced shooting drills I've ever looked at, and I'm really glad to have Joe back with us again. And with that, hey, Joe, welcome back to the Survival Podcast, man. Well, thank you for having me, sir. I've uh, been looking forward to talking to you. Well, I've been looking forward to having you back. We had a great first interview with you. People loved you. But for those of uh, the audience that uh, maybe haven't heard that interview yet, could you tell people a little bit about your background and why we're calling you Joe Nobody in the first place? Sure. Um, I made a living for several years uh, doing private uh, contracting for the government. I signed a lot of NDAs. Uh, the guy that uh, just wrote that recent book uh, on the hunt for Osama bin Laden, I think, is a prime example of why I uh, like to keep my identity personal. 
And uh, my background, I also kind of like to keep it uh, uh, humble, if you will, low-key. Uh, I want people to read my books and blog and, and listen to me and say, uh, okay, I'll do what makes sense. I'm not going to do it just because that guy had a great DD214 and, and uh, you know, because he was uh, a supposed expert on this or that and the other. I, I like people to do what makes sense to them. I think that's important, and I also think that a lot of folks could learn from that. Um, one, the, the, the Cognito stuff, definitely you bring up a great point with the uh, the new book about the Bin Laden issue. But the, the humble nature, because I don't know, I mean, I've seen people do training, sell training stuff and all, and they'll, they'll demo how good they are. There's nothing wrong with that. They'll do it to the extent of, well, it doesn't really matter that you can do that. I mean, Bob London can do some pretty cool trick shooting, too, but I can watch him do it on video all day, and I'm not going to be able to shoot a balloon at 250 yards with a 38 snub nose. So there's there's kind of a level that people are capable of getting to. Absolutely, um, and it's the same thing. You know, the first book was on how to set up your your bug out location or your domain for defense. Nobody can write a book that will cover every situation for every location. And again, I uh, hope people would read the book and do what made sense to them. Try it, practice it, exercise it. Don't do it just because Joe Nobody was, uh, you know, a Green Beret for 800 years and, and is, uh, you know, just assistant God to war. Do it because it makes sense. Now, your newest book, what we have you on to talk about today, is uh, The Homeschooled Shootist, and it is on firearms training and combat shooting, and it is... You know, after reviewing it and, you know, along with watching some of the video work you guys did kind of as, as a teaser for it, one of the more advanced combat shooting books I've ever seen for the average person. Um, why did you decide to maybe take it to that level? Because your previous books gave a lot on sectors of fire and cover and things like that, but they didn't go to this level. What made you decide to go to this level? I see so many people who have... Uh, uh, exercised their Second Amendment rights. They went out. They bought a, uh, you know, a box magazine-fed weapon, uh, typically a, a battle rifle or, or some people call them assault rifles. And they now have this weapon. They maybe uh, gotten some good optics for it. Um, and really, the tactics and the, the technology have changed so much just in the last ten years. It's very difficult to keep up with with the latest. And if you don't, um, that fancy battle rifle isn't going to do you a whole lot of good. And my primary occupation for a long time has been uh, training combat shooters. And I wanted to share uh, a book full of tips and tricks, exercises, drills, philosophy uh, that, that I've used as an instructor for years. And you actually kind of held back a little bit from what I read uh, of your, your your synopsis on Amazon. Like it took a little bit of, you know, do you really want to go to this level? But you made the decision to do that, right? That's correct. The uh, A lot of people will have no need for these skills. Hopefully they will never have any need for these skills. Um, we tried to make the exercises in the book fun, uh, entertaining, as, as well as productive. 
if you looked at the video, for example, we show a, a little clip of uh, uh, the corporal and I shooting at a uh, uh, remote control vehicle with a bunch of balloons on it for a target. A moving target is a common thing in a combat shootout. Uh, a moving target, whether it's somebody trying to take the food away from your bug out location after a collapse or if it's a burglar coming into your home, people don't stand still. Nobody well, goes toe to toe. You mean the guys just going to stand still a nice half silhouette targets for us at exactly 20 meters and wait for us to shoot? Well, I've never had any bad guys do that. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> So a moving target, yet it's uh, if most people, I think, are honest with themselves, how often at the range or at a practice session do you set something up that's a moving target? And so we teach in the book how to do that economically, very cheap uh, to set up the drills. Uh, we give you full instructions on how to do it, and it will make you better, and it will make chances of surviving a hostile encounter uh, much greater. Well, and you talk about being inexpensive, and, you know, you can get a little remote-controlled vehicle to move the, the thing around, and, and that's not real expensive. But one of the things that I thought when I looked at it that was just really a great idea was shooting balloons. You've got a reactive target, even hung from a tree or something like that. If it's windy, they ain't going to sit still by themselves. They'll move. And you can buy 100 balloons pretty dadgone cheap, so it's a really inexpensive um, reactive target that does make the training more engaging and fun. I'm I know there's a place for printing printing nice groups on a paper target, but it's not for everything, and it's a heck of a lot more fun when you are engaging something that gives you direct feedback. Well, not only that, if if the wife's mad at you because you spent too much on ammunition, you can even uh, use happy anniversary balloons. Uh, oh, no, maybe that's not a good idea. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> I don't want to have to anybody to have to go to the bug out location over a domestic incident. Uh, but anyway, the uh, absolutely, the idea for balloons is not new. Um, everybody, I think, uh, in the firearms world has heard of Colonel Jeff Cooper. He used to sponsor a shooting competition in Southern California called Leather Slap. And as far as I know, uh, he was the first one that started using balloons as a reactive target. Very cheap, very easy to do, um, and and you get feedback. You get feedback instantly. I think that's really important level of feedback you get back, and and I think that that's why I, I try to do most of the training I do with reactive targets, whether it's combat training or just you know target shooting, uh, sport training for for hunting. Uh, those reactive targets give you a lot of. Uh, a lot of confidence in, you, in your ability and also point out a lot of inadequacies. But when I look at the book itself, it's some pretty radical stuff. And, uh, you know, you said not everybody's going to need this stuff. Hopefully you never will. So what can the average prepper take away from this book? Well, first of all, the, there are a lot of uh, defensive preps, I call them, uh, firearms-based preps that you can do in the comfort of your own, own home. Uh, not everybody has time to go to the range. Not everybody has the opportunity to uh, visit a, a shooting facility that has the flexibility to do some of the other drills. Uh, we try to stress in the book that you achieve a natural point of aim and you be able to do so from a reactionary um, uh, position. 
uh, everybody's uh, the shiver shot competition. You get ready to run the course. You're in a ready position. The rifle's up, or your hands are up in the don't shoot position, or whatever. It's fixed. It's practice. What we try to get people to realize is, is if you're walking through the woods collecting uh, wild apples uh, in a situation, and somebody uh, engages you, your hands aren't going to be in the ready position. The rifle's not going to be up. And so a, a big part of combat shooting is going naturally to that point of aim that we're all born with and being able to do so, whether your hand's in a cooler full of soda pop or you're reaching up and and uh, pulling an orange off of a tree. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It makes me think of some of the training I did with the uh, Russian guys where we were using airsoft for uh, training and while you're engaging somebody shooting at you, there's this huge Russian guy whipping tennis balls at your head at about 80 miles an hour. And it changes the equation when you have to deal uh, with moving and, and, and not, like you said, not starting in kind of this ready-go position. Yeah, it's, it's surprise is always a bad thing. Uh, that's why ambushes are always so effective. That's a, a big part of why snipers are always so effective. Um, you know, it takes the human brain a few seconds to react or a few moments to react depending on, on the person. And so for the average prepper, for the average person who's, you know, they're not going out to the Middle East and, and getting in a gunfight on a regular basis, but they want to develop skills that will uh, increase their survivability. There's exercises and techniques in the book designed to do that. Absolutely. I, again, I, I cannot praise you highly enough for what I've uh, what I've seen so far as I've been going through the book. Um, but one thing you say in the book is it's possible to make the average weapon a lot more accurate with little to no expense. Can you expand on that? And I, part of it, I assume, is making the shooter more accurate. That's the primary way I've been able to get weapons to be more accurate is work on the shooter. But you've got some other stuff as well there, right? Uh, yes. Um, first of all, let's talk about just uh, regardless whether it's an AK or an SKS or an AR-15 M4 platform, mounting optics properly, you, I just can't tell you how many rifles, carbines, battle rifles I've worked on, uh, I've been involved with, and the optics are not mounted correctly. The, uh, they are canted a few degrees one way or the other. Uh, on the AR-15 M4 platform, everybody's rail crazy so they can uh, mount all kinds of accessories, flashlights and lasers and all of that. One out of three rifles I see on the M4 platform, the rails are not properly aligned uh, to the barrel. So you always want to mount an optic to the barrel, not the rail. And you need to take the time to make sure if there's a crosshair, a, a mill dot, um, whatever type of, of reticle you have on, if it's a scope, you need to take the time to make sure that it is absolutely flush perfect with the barrel. And that will increase accuracy uh, for quite a few rifles, uh, quite a few setups that are out there. Another thing that a lot of people don't realize is, is that ammunition makes a tremendous difference in accuracy. Uh, you can get a half an MOA or, or moment of angle, um, I'm sorry, minute of angle out of a 
uh, just a switch in ammunition out of the average M4 or out of the average AK. And so we put instructions in the book on how to measure uh, how far uh, off the lands that, that your uh, bullet is sitting when the, when the round is chambered. Uh, that will buy a lot of accuracy. The one thing that I want to stress for your listeners is in combat shooting, accuracy really isn't that important. Uh, I would rather see a student, an operator, snap two shots four inches apart in less than a second than two shots a half inch apart in two seconds. It's all back to that survivability equation. It's all back to that you being the last man standing. Yeah, I think there's like there's an accuracy component there, but it's like the the difference in a four inch versus one inch group and the time being more important. And I think most people have hands that are more than four inches from the tip of their finger to their wrist. And all I'd say to anybody listening to that is take your hand, stick it in the center of your chest, and start turning it. And you'll see yeah. that if you can hit four inches, you've got you've got you know, a minute of man accuracy. And so I think that's. The component there that you're talking about is making sure you're accurate enough, but let's not fidget and fiddle over a quarter of an inch. Absolutely correct. And so the part about accuracy that we were talking about, milking every last little quarter MOA out of your weapon, that is to do with the weapon. When you're snapping a shot, when it is a reactionary shot, the more accurate your weapon is, the better chance you have of hitting that center mass when you need to. Absolutely. I agree with that. A thing I've seen a lot of people have problems with, and not just on ARs and, and, and uh, combat rifles, but in rifles in general with optics, is with the mounting problem, is not having um, the, the rings tight around the scope or not having the mounts tight and then saying you know, the weapon's inaccurate, and what's actually happening is the, the optics are moving, and if, uh, a fraction of a, of a tiny millimeter of movement yeah, completely changes point of impact. Have you seen that problem a lot as well? Yes, um, and there is, uh, I think a lot of people underestimate the recoil of even a 5.56 NATO round, very uh, what a lot of people consider an anemic round. Um, I, I have a different philosophy about that, but it is a smaller round. There's some great YouTube videos out there that show in ultra super slow motion uh, various weapons being discharged. And I suggest that uh, everybody watch those. Um, there's a lot of torque going down that rifle barrel and into that into the, the chamber, into the receiver uh, of the weapon. And if your scope mounts aren't tight and loctited down, um, you're you're not going to be accurate. You're, the thing's going to wobble around in there, and and you're going to be playing pinball, not shooting. That's the word I was waiting to hear you drop is loctite. I think it's one of the best investments you can make. It's a couple bucks, and it'll save you a lot of headaches. Just make sure you get the removable kind, because if you don't, you're going to be unhappy. Yes, it, it, it can make uh, eventual optic change uh, a little difficult if you don't get <laughs> if you don't get the right kind. But it, it's not expensive. Uh, what is it? A couple of bucks for a bottle or less? Tube, yeah. And I mean that'll you can put a hundred scopes on with one tube of the stuff. Uh, yeah. And uh, another thing along that same line, I, I see it so much, and I show pictures in the book 
of a, a small bubble level uh, that connects on to an optic or can connect on to a 1913 rail. And it will show you if you're canting the rifle or tilting the rifle left or right, uh, even a few degrees. And that is uh, so many shooters come up into their natural point of aim and the rifle is tilted four or five degrees right or left. And if you practice, if you work on it, that natural snap of the rifle up to your shoulder to, to do the shot, it, you can get it pretty level. You can get it uh, over time and practice. You can get it to where you're not tilted four or five degrees, and that will throw off your shot. Absolutely, completely agree. I got a question for you while we're on optics. Um, if you were setting up an M4, uh, AR, what have you, and you're going to put optics on it, and you have a pretty decent budget, you know, not not maybe a blue sky budget with the Star Trek scope or something, but you've got a substantial budget, you can afford one of the better scopes. What would you pick? And if you didn't have a really good budget. If you you know if you'd spent the money on on the weapon and you're going to be out of money for a while and you got to go budget, what would you do then? Well, that's a very interesting question. I'm glad you asked it um, because I have been either a aim point uh, red dot guy, or if I'm in a more open environment, I've been a Trigicon ACOG guy. Uh, I have several ACOGs, uh, several aim points. Um, nothing wrong with EOTechs. I've just always liked the aim point. If you've got an EOTech, it's a great optic. I'm getting ready to retire. I'm in the process of retiring my ACOGs and, and the aim points. Uh, there is recent technology, if you will, that is, uh, they're called first focal plane and a variety of companies are coming out with them, uh, and their optics that are a 1x6 or a 1x8 uh, zoom. And this solves so many problems. Um, you know, always before, if you had a dot, a red dot, a holographic, then you either didn't have any magnification or you had to put a magnifier behind it. And they're a pain. Uh, there's ones that twist off and flip off. I've had them all. They're a pain. Uh, yeah, I've always get, hated those things. I just absolutely detested them. Uh, uh, yeah, and um, I don't think anybody's made a really good mounting system for them yet. On the other side, we had the ACOG, which is either a 3 or a 3.8, I believe, magnification. But for immediate target acquisition, you don't want any magnification. Your field of view is too limited. So what these new breed of, of uh, optics are doing is they're a combination of a red dot and a scope. And you can start off with the one. They've got a great field of view. You can have both eyes open. You can acquire the target, look for work. Or if you have a longer distance, you can zoom them in. And what the first focal plane does is, is your reticle changes size as you zoom. So you don't have any adjustment, uh, holdover issue or calculation issues with that for front focal plane, first focal plane. And that's what I'm going with, and that's what I would recommend. They come in all price ranges and quality levels. And you ask about if you had a good budget, 
you can get them. I think Schmidt and Bender makes the most expensive one I've seen. It's over three thousand uh, dollars, all the way down to I think Burris makes a pretty good one. Uh, not a, I'm going to get one of those for my son. Uh, it's a one by four, I believe, and I think it's a couple hundred bucks. And that's and that's a great kind of that one by four, one by six. I've always liked that range. Of, uh, of magnification, and I like to be able to get down to, you know, zero mag or at most like one and a half. Yeah, yeah. It's And what your eye is used to, uh, younger guys, they typically have a little bit better eyes. Um, they can handle target acquisition just as fast on a 1.5, uh, you know, at the low side. Then us older guys, maybe the eyes aren't so good anymore. I'm one of those. Uh, people and so I kind of need a one. Uh, the the even a half of uh, a mag magnification is is a little distracting to me. I'm I'm just uh, pulling some of these up on uh, some different websites now. I've got one on cheaper than dirt made by uh, Firefield, and uh, it's a one to six by twenty four. It looks like a great optic in that budget range, one hundred sixty bucks. Yeah. yeah. Yep. The, uh, you know, and you can get, Leopold makes one that is a couple thousand bucks. You can get every step in between, uh, price wise, you know, just like any other optic. That's, that's what I'm going to, uh, I'm, I'm in the process of doing it now and trying out and testing and, and practicing with a couple of different models. And probably in the next two months, uh, by the end of the year anyway, the, the ACOGs will be retired. Okay, cool. Very, very interesting. I'm glad I asked that as well because we got into an area I didn't think we were going to go with that, and I appreciate your insight on it, and I'll maybe add one of these to, to one of my ARs real soon. Um, in your book also, though, you talk a lot about stuff like weight training and nutrition. Uh, that's kind of unusual for a shooting book. Um Using those things and making them part of your training, how much difference do you think the average person can expect to see? On the weight training side, I, I think they can see an enormous difference. Uh, one of the little things, the tips or tricks that's in the book is to get, uh, I think most people have seen them, the, the flexible ankle weights. You can get them at sporting goods stores, and they have a Velcro strip. Uh, athletes use them, they put them on their ankles so that, you know, they get a resistance, uh, endurance weight training. They strap on to the, the rails of an M4 very nicely. And, you know, it's only a couple of pounds, but if you exercise with your rifle, if you practice your remedial drills, if you just out in the backyard, just bring it up, pop a new mag in, change mags, switch shoulders, things like that, you will uh, develop endurance and speed that wasn't there before. Um, and it makes a big difference, probably as much as any of the techniques described in the book. People come back and tell me, wow, uh, working out with that ankle weight on the barrel really improved my times or really improved my confidence with the weapon. And you, we see baseball players do it all the time. If you watch baseball, yeah, they put a weight uh, on their bat, that type of thing. Yeah, they warm up, they get loose with it. A lot of that's also to increase bat speed. Yeah, and absolutely. And it makes sense that it's a lot like, you know, you see shot putters uh, practicing with heavier uh, shot puts than they actually throw in competition. 
you know, golfers take, when they're warming up on the first tee, they take two clubs out of the bag often, and they'll do some practice swings to, you know, get loosened up and, do, and uh, you know, increase their strength. Yep. What, yeah, what, you're, sense. what you're trying to do um, is become very much like uh, the martial artists with, with edged weapons. They practice so much. They practice with heavier um, uh, practice equipment than, than what they are using in real life. And you want that weapon to become a, a natural part of your body or so light weight to your muscle structure and, and your, your balance that it's almost like it's not there. Yeah, and the, the statement my my uh, martial arts teacher used when I was growing up and taking uh, training with him was, it needs to be an extension of your hand. Absolutely, uh, an extension of your body. And, and um, if you watch these guys, uh, you were talking about the trick shooters and, and the demonstration shooters earlier. Yep. If you watch those guys really close besides a, a natural stance, a natural point of aim, they that weather that weapon looks feather light in their hands, mm. and, and it's not because they're big strong guys. No, you're right. It's because their 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 muscle memory is so in tune, and the people that can shoot that way, that pure instinctive shooting, there. I don't think there's any way that a person using sights can match their speed because they've gotten to that point And there's I've seen people do that with all types of things. I've seen people do it. There's guys I know that can knock birds out of the air with a freaking slingshot, you know, and it's it's something that I think if you work at it, you can get there to a degree. Well, we cover, we cover that, that topic uh, quite a bit in the book. Um, you know, most people are born uh, with a God-given natural point of aim, and, and how you, how the, the justification for that statement is ask a child, even a three-year-old, to point to something. Yep. And if you had a little laser mounted on their finger when they pointed, they point pretty darn accurately. Um, and and we develop it as as we grow and mature even more accurately. So why is it so much more difficult to point with your finger and be accurate than it is to point with a weapon? And there's a lot of reasons for that, and I'm sure some of the reasons are different for different body types and different people. That's what you're trying to get to, is that, that natural, God-given point of aim. And, and the reaction shooters that you're talking about, those are guys, that girls that have embraced that gift. Absolutely. And I, I, it, it, the biggest reason that you can point with your finger and not with the weapon is because the finger is you. And that's, that's what you're talking about, is bridging that gap and trying to basically transcend that weapon to the point where it becomes an extension versus an implement that you're holding. And uh, I, I definitely like, and it, you see it in a lot of shooting sports in different ways. And one of the, like, for instance, one of the ways that you'll work with shooters who are having a hard time with a shotgun breaking clays is to take the, you know, the, the, the right hand of that left hand that's up on that forearm and leave that index finger pointed out along the, uh, the forearm. So that it, it it comes into play that way, and they're actually pointing with it, and you you can take little steps like that. And I've seen people go from breaking ten percent of clays to to fifty or sixty with that one change because you're engaging that part of the body that you're talking about. 
Uh, yes, and um, and that that skill with that weapon, I, I, over the years, I'll make this statement, and it may may seem a little bit radical, but that is infinitely tunable, uh, both in accuracy and in speed. And what you mean by that is, no matter how good you are, you can become better. Yes, I agree, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. I I had the the honor of shooting with some of the Delta Force members. Um, anybody that's not familiar with Delta Force, that's the creme de la creme. They are some of the most lethal individuals on the planet. And those guys amongst themselves, was they were always leapfrogging. They were always striving to just tune off that tenth of a second on that snapshot. And it, it was amazing. Um, you would think they they use their weapons two to three thousand rounds a month, and you would think they would reach a pinnacle of skills and be satisfied with that. And they're not. They are always always striving to just a little bit better. And I think that's a, probably a lesson the average Joe nobody uh, can take a lot from. In my experience working with um, with guys out of, out of the, the former Soviet Union, uh, Speknok and uh, KGB, th- those guys are the same way. It's, it's universal uh, at that level of combat that, that they constantly seek a higher level of performance. Well, I, and people ask me why I picked Joe Nobody um, as a as a name. It's really from that for that reason. Um, you know, a lot of people have looked at that video that we've put up as a trailer for the book, and they see us shooting those Frisbees with an M4, and they're like, wow, <laughs> that's incredible. Well, no, it's not. Uh, I'm just a Joe Nobody. I'm not in the upper echelon uh, of that world, and it's, I don't think, unreasonable at all for the average prepper to think about that a little bit. If it goes bad and you're not ready, if it all falls apart and you're way, way, way down at the bottom of that ladder uh, on on skills, there are guys out there who are very, very good, and there are a lot of them. I think there's more Um, than people are aware of. uh, I, I think there is, too. Well, the average person, yeah, sometimes it worries me a little bit some of the guys I see, just how fine-tuned their skills are. And most of them are honorable people. Most of them are going to be the guy you want, you know, with you at your bug-out location or you want in your neighborhood helping you, you know, keep an eye on things. But there will be some percentage of desperate that, that could go rogue. Yeah, absolutely. That's always the case in society. And, you know, there's there were a lot of our soldiers killed in places like Vietnam by untrained teenagers as well. So that danger is always there, and your skill set is just one thing you can use to counteract that danger. Yes, and and you know what? It's fun. Uh, yeah, it is fun. fun. I was watching your video when you guys were shooting the balloons off the back of the remote control vehicle, and I'm like, I gotta do that just for the hell of it. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's it's an afternoon away from the Xbox. Um, it, it's good exercise. Uh, it's not, you know, if you've already got a weapon and you've already got ammunition, it's it's not a tremendous expense involved. 
Yeah, absolutely. But now we have all these outside drills, shooting and all, but you have a lot that can be practiced right at home uh, in the book as well. So how do those help the typical shooter? Well, uh, one of the things, just as an example, one of the drills that we do is, is take a couple of rubber bands and a cheap 9 or $10 laser that you can get at an office supply store, just a laser pointer. I'm not talking about a laser designator or a, a laser aiming device. Just a cheap laser pointer and rubber band it onto your weapon, and you can play drills around the house. Identify four or five things, snap up the rifle, and turn on the laser. And it, it won't lie. Um, you and it just achieving that natural point of aim, just just that motion of bringing up the rifle from a non-ready position. You do that 15 or 20 times a week. You know, just for 20 minutes a week. After three or four weeks, when you really go out to shoot the weapon for real, when you get a chance to go to the range or the ranch or the farm, you are going to be stunned at how good that rifle feels and how natural that motion becomes. It's really no different than swinging a tennis racket or a golf club or hitting a ping pong ball. It's just a little practice. Uh, we talked about the weight training. We also give a set of drills for remedials on mag changes and switching shoulders. Um, one of the things that I've learned over the years and we cover in the book, for example, is I squeeze both of my index fingers at the same time uh, when I'm shooting, both my right and my left index finger. Obviously, only one of them is on the trigger, but that's just a little hint or tip that helped me when I uh, work on shooting from the weak side or from the off side. So I'm naturally right-handed. When I'm my right hand's on that trigger, if you watch me shoot, I'm actually squeezing both fingers. And it doesn't matter if it's a pistol or it doesn't, or a rifle or a shotgun or I'm hunting or if I'm training. And you'll find, a lot of people find, not everybody, but a lot of people find that when you switch shoulders, that's one of the biggest eye-hand brain control uh, ODA loop problems they have is their trigger finger. And that's just a drill you can do at home to improve. My problem is I have about 2,100 vision in my left eye, so I can't see. <laughs> That's a hard one to overcome. But I still try to do it a bit and try to at least be reasonably in, you know, in minute of man accuracy at, let's say, 25 yards with it. But that's a really hard thing to overcome if you have really poor vision in one eye. Yes, and I uh, have begun to, uh, you know, I'm 52 years old. Uh, my eyes aren't near what they used to be. Uh, another reason why I'm retiring the ACOGS is identification or target identification, friend or foe threat level. Um, I, I just simply can't see as well on a 4X optic. And I struggle with it a little bit. If I've got a 5 or 6 or an 8X optic, uh, saying it helps. But no, I, I have the same situation that you do. I've got one eye that's just not quite as strong as the other. And, uh, you know, you just adapt and overcome and do the best that you can with those things. Uh, I don't know any operator that's out there walking around that's absolutely perfect left to right or right to left. Sure. Sure. I mean, there's a reason that, you know, one of the first things they do with basic rifle training is determine your your dominant eye. 
Yeah. Now that 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 emphasis has with modern prism and holographic optics, and both eye open uh, uh, sighting systems and training. You're right. That that's still a factor, but the if you learn to shoot with both eyes open uh and especially with an ACOG that was one of the things I loved about the ACOG when it came out is it was a true both eyes open aiming system and not only did it increase your peripheral vision uh and and your capability to identify threats coming in from the from the side um if you did have an eye that was slightly dominant it, having them both open would often overcome that that little issue. It's assuming you can actually see out of the non-dominant eye. Yeah, you yeah, know, that, that's, that's the other side of that. So, um, what what do you think maybe would be two or three things that a person might learn in this book we haven't already covered that would be something that gets overlooked a lot by people or gets not not discussed or, or especially outside of the training circles that we were talking about earlier and it in the average person's world well um i think number one would be stance um i think a lot of people initially learn with firearms if they're not military uh, or don't have a military background I think a lot of people initially learn a pistol stance. Um, one of the things I put in the book, and, and not necessarily proud of, but it, it's a fact. Uh, when someone's shooting at me, I become very frightened, and my natural reaction is to try to hide behind the weapon. Uh, I know that maybe sounds a little bit less alpha male than, than a lot of people would think, but it's the truth. And... So if you practice, if you develop shooting stances that do not have you hiding behind that weapon, when you actually get into a situation, your body's not going to be where you think it is. Um, another thing that I strongly believe in and that I teach is that your stance with a pistol and a shoulder-fired weapon should be the same. And we show pictures of that. Uh, in the book. It doesn't matter if it's a deer rifle or an AK or a 45 automatic, your, your basic body parts and stance, balance, all of that should be the same. Because if your brain has to learn to, it's difficult enough to get proficient with one stance, let alone if your brain's gotta learn two. And then if you get in a situation, your brain's gotta decide, your ODA loops you go through, you've gotta determine, um, which one is the right one for the weapon that I'm bringing to bear? There's, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I did a video with just a Marlin 22 explaining that very thing using a pistol because one of the biggest problems I see that people have with stance, and this is a basics thing, but I see it with people that have been shooting a long time because it's never been corrected, is instead of bringing that weapon and the sighting system along with it up into the, the, the line of sight, they're dropping the head, bending the neck, and bringing it down. And my point in the video with that handgun was when you bring a handgun up, you don't bring the handgun up 50% of the way and bring your head down to it, right? You bring it up no. into that, that line of sight with, with that eye locked on that target, whether it's stationary or moving, that eye stays locked and the weapon comes to the eye. And I think you see that perfectly with the handgun rifle uh, comparison. 
it, it, if I think most everybody out there, you and I are singing off the same page, uh, and I think probably 99% of the professionals out there uh, would would say the same thing. I think almost everyone listening has been frightened. Uh, uh, older brother has jumped around the corner. Um, a snake has appeared in the path in, in front of you in the woods. A bull has charged you or whatever. And that level of fear, if you think back, if you remember the experience and what your body did, how you reacted, what went through your mind, that's really not that much different than if somebody takes a shot at you. And so if if you learn from that experience, simplicity and redundancy is what's key. And that's what's going to increase your survivability and allow you to address that threat with lead faster, better, and hopefully be the last man standing. But let me say, you know, when you're talking about, you know, fright and fear and, 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 and taking these, these uh, re- reactive measures uh, instinctively because your body wants you to, anybody out there that's ever actually been shot at, especially more than, like, I guess it happens to people maybe one time and they don't even realize it happened and they're not scared until 10 minutes after it because they're in shock. But anybody that says that they get shot at and they're not afraid is either lying or stupid or both. And Or numb. Yeah, 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 exactly. You're dead. <laughs> I guess you're not afraid if you never see it coming and you get hit between the eyes. But, I mean, otherwise, I think that a rational human being with basic survival instinct, when something threatens that survival, fear is actually a healthy component as long as it doesn't control you. If people had no fear, we'd have dead people laying everywhere. You're you're right on the money there from from my perspective, and it has been proven over and over and over again that you're you will most easily overcome fear with a redundantly practiced action. You do what you're trained to do. You'll hear soldiers and police officers and 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 first responders talk about that all the time. My training kicked in. How many times have you heard that that phrase? What one of the main motivators for me to write the book is is train the right way. Train in a way that that says I'm going to be scared. I'm going to you know I'm going to react this way. I'm going to jump back a little bit. I'm going to freeze for just a moment. Um, I'm going to try to hide behind the weapon. And if you train that way, and your training quote kicks in you'll be in a whole lot better position. Yeah, I completely agree. And, um, again, I'm back to the Russian guy throwing the tennis balls at me. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, that's something you got to try someday, Joe, is uh, some uh, you know, force-on-force training with non-lethal you know, stuff like airsoft or something and, and have a rogue out there that you're not allowed to engage throwing shit at you. That really um, it, it puts things on another level. Oh, we, we've done it with the paintball guns. Yeah, and and no, and you know, just your normal body armor. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, paintball, where paintball hurts is, and you get hit in the. If you don't have gloves on, you get hit in the hands, right on the knuckles. The, God, that stinks. Uh, well, the ear isn't real oh, good yeah. either. <laughs> <laughs> Airsoft in the ear from behind. Uh, 
is is just gnarly. I I saw one picture on a forum where they were talking about how important with you know force on force training like that rules of engagement are. Like you don't take a shot if you're a certain distance and things like that. And they showed one guy that got hit with an automatic airsoft gun in the back of the ear, and he had about six of them. And it looked like almost like um almost like it was intended, like some kind of weird piercing. Like six of them embedded in the in the the rim on the back of his ear, and it looked really painful. <laughs> yeah, it, and now it, it, force on force with, with simulated ammunition or weapons is is very good trigger time. The only drawback to that that I've seen over the years, and, and why that's not, uh, uh, you know, just a, a more hours aren't aren't dedicated to that in training regiments um, by the military and law enforcement is it can develop some bad habits. People will do some things that they wouldn't normally do in that situation. Uh, but, you know, hey, any trigger time, anything that induces stress is good practice. It's good training. Uh, and stress can be noise. Stress can be time. Stress can be competition. We even outline one exercise in, in the book that is, uh, we call it the waterboarding, where we set up lawn sprinklers and hoses. And you'd be surprised how much people don't want to get wet. Hmm. Um, it's great training for learning to keep your leg and, and part of your body behind cover. If you have a, a jet of cold water hitting the cover, and you, if, you st- if you go out around the cover too far, you're going to get wet, it's a great reinforcer. Um, go ahead. We also caution people, if you're going to use water for training, don't do that unless you've developed very disciplined, safe-on, safe-off weapon control because people slip and fall. Um, We had a guy some years ago that slipped, uh, fell backwards, the the butt of the rifle hit the ground, and, and the round went off. And so make sure that you develop that, you know, the safety's coming off as the weapon's coming up, and the safety goes back on immediately after the shot. I absolutely agree. And But the other side of that is that is what real combat is like. It's not all dry and perfect. So you've got to kind of work yourself up to the control level where you can train that way safely. But I think it's worth doing because – you know, we talked about the bad guy not standing at 25 meters there, motionless, waiting for you to take careful aim. They generally don't listen to things like, hey, can we do this later when it's not raining? Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> and the waterboarding, the waterboarding exposes some interesting equipment issues from time to time, too. You know, is that optic really fog-proof? Yeah. Um, is, the, is the angle of the concave glass thus that it drains, or does it pool? Mm. Um, you know, you mean just because the, the thing I bought it with the little thing that came with it says it's fog proof doesn't mean it's fog proof. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, and especially if it's a year or two old, the seals have weakened. You banged it around on your load gear or, or bumped it up against armored vehicles or car doors or whatever uh, trees. Um, the yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean it. It still is fog proof. Let me put it that way. And I bet, um, I bet you've heard this before. Men, if it ain't raining, we ain't training. That's right. It, it, but, well, and I had a, an operator uh, some years back who we were running the, the waterboarding, 
and he had a brand new load vest. I, I don't remember the brand, and it got wet, and the the material swelled, oh, wow. and he couldn't get his magazines out. Wow! And huh. you <laughs> you don't want to find that out when there's no stores open anymore to go get another one or find that out for the first time when you, when you're being shot at. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That, um, that really, that's, that's something that kind of an overlooked thing about testing your gear, uh, and going ahead and getting it in any kind of environmental condition it can be in wet, cold, hot, uh, whatever. I, I don't know why this You remember the movie gladiator, where the guy tries yeah. the sword out, and he goes, frost makes it stick. And then he just do- does the guy in. But that's kind of a, an example, you know. You, you, what's going to happen when that gear is really cold? What's going to happen when it's really hot? What's going to happen when it's really humid? What's going to happen when you've just crawled through mud? Or you maybe not crawled through mud, but you do- dove into mud because you're somebody shooting at you. And that's one of the reasons I've always... I, I try to make my gear look as nondescript, non-military as possible, but yet I have a real affinity for military gear, uh, actual issue gear, because it's been through that kind of testing. Yes, uh, and that's why so many, you know, it, it's a, uh, an Army surplus store is a good place for a prepper to be. Uh, as long I'm, as you can find a real one, because there's a lot of, you know, there ain't nothing in their surplus other than the name. Uh, yeah, uh, you find a real one, uh, and you can always tell if, if the stuff in the big cardboard boxes at the back has some private's name written in it, and it's got sweat stains on it, then it's probably real. Absolutely, absolutely. And for those that listen to the show, you guys know, Old Grouch Military Surplus Online, that's one of the real mill surpluses that are still out there. Yeah, I, I have shopped there myself. Oh, wow, really? Cool. Yep. Um, so anyway, real uh, another common uh, talking about water and and rain and foul weather gear. Um, I've had operators say, "Well, I'll just put on my poncho." I, I've got a poncho in my kit. Hey, great! Show me a mag change with that poncho on. Yeah, exactly. Not to mention, boy, I tell you what: if you want to be wet from the knees down, use a military poncho. <laughs> yeah, this is a way to funnel water into your boots. I, I almost preferred not to put that dead gun thing on when we were out in the rain because you're going to get it wet anyway, <laughs> and at least uh, the water's evenly distributed instead of channeled from your mid knee down. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, it, uh, uh, well, another one's hats. Um, I, I went to a uh, rifle course years ago. And it was one of the equipment checklist items was wear a baseball hat and wear it right was exactly what the instructor had put down. Well, I don't like a baseball hat in the rain. The water goes right down my neck. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe uh, I've been accused of having a flat head before. Maybe that's why. But, um, you know, the Green Berets picked their bush hats for a reason and a lot of reasons. And that's one of the reasons. It will keep that water from going on the back of your neck. Uh, another famous equipment failure story. Um, you've seen uh, in Afghanistan of, of the the guys running around on ATVs and dirt bikes or horseback. Sling your rifle around to your back and ride your ATV through the desert. Your rifle on a lot of models will end up looking like a sugar cookie. 
you've got that rooster tail of dust. And especially if you run a wet gun, uh, which I do, um, you're asking for trouble. Uh, so, you know, that's why the, the Joe Nobody book stress so intensely to work with your gear. Go out in the snow and walk with your pack on. Go out in the rain. Just do your remedials out in the backyard once with your gear on while it's raining. It'll dry out. You'll be fine. Um, and you're never going to figure all this out unless you actually go out and try it. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. Um, I'll, kind of wrapping up here, how can folks get your book, read your blog, all that good stuff, Joe? Uh, the book's available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. It's also available off of our webpage, which is www.holdingyourground.com. Again, holding your ground, no spaces or dashes or dots, just kind of like it was all one word. And, uh, man, it just has been a pleasure talking to you again. I really appreciate it, and it's, it's always good. All right, cool, man. And I appreciate you being on the show again, and I want to remind everybody that you've agreed to answer questions as part of our expert council. So if they want to uh, ask a question uh, of you, I'm sure you'll be still happy to answer those. Always, always, always glad to help. That's why I do what I do is, is I just get this, I get my jollies out of helping people. And folks, remember to make that uh, phone uh, inquiry for a question for Joe on one of the call-in shows, 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. Email me as soon as you finish your call and let me know the number you called from, and I put all expert counsel calls into a priority queue to make sure that we get it through as many of them as we possibly can. And again, Joe, thank you. Uh, thank you for your service to our nation. Uh, in, in the past and, I, and maybe the recent present. I, I'm not sure what you're doing now in your private life. Uh, I know you're continuing to train folks, though, and that's, that's huge. And thanks for being on the show with us today. Thank you, sir. And folks, with that, this is Jack Spirico along with Joe Nobody helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget are what we eat I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay I guess when we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.